This is Our American Stories, and from 1955 to 1975, to Helen Back, the true life story of America's most decorated soldier of World War II, Audie Murphy, was Universal Studios' highest earning motion picture. That is, until a 27-year-old unknown writer-director named Steven Spielberg signed on to a movie based on Peter Benchley's best-selling novel titled Jaws. And today on this day in history, that movie opened in 1975. Here's Steven Spielberg and author-screenwriter Peter Benchley. When I first hear the word Jaws, you know, I just think of a period in my life uh, when I was much younger than I am right now. And I think because I was younger, I was more courageous or I was more stupid. I'm not sure which. So when I think of Jaws, I think about courage and stupidity. And I think of both of those things existing underwater. I had been thinking for years about a story about a shark that attacks people and what would happen if it came in and wouldn't go away. And and I hadn't done anything with it, really. And then in 1964, I read a story about a shark fisherman off Long Island who caught a 4,550-pound great white shark off the beaches of Long Island. And I thought, wow, what would happen if one of these things came in and wouldn't go away? And again, I didn't do anything about it until 19... 70 or 71, when a publisher finally said, that's an interesting story, I'll pay you a couple of dollars if you'll put it on paper. So that's how the idea began. Here's Jaws producers Richard Zanuck and David Brown after reading the novel. We both read it overnight, got on the phone with each other the next morning and uh, said, look, we don't know how we can possibly do it, but we decided we, we must have this. Whatever it takes, this is the most exciting thing we've ever read and we'll figure out later how, to, how we can make it. Had we read it twice, in my opinion, we never would have made Jaws because anybody with a modicum of production knowledge would know there was no way to get a shark to leap on the stern of a small boat and swallow a man. How are we going to do this? Were we going to do it in animation? Who was going to do this? Here's Spielberg on his writing team and one of the most memorable scenes in Jaws. Peter Benchley did a very good adaptation of his own novel. And then Peter kind of turned it over to me and said, here it is and do with it what you want. And at that point, I didn't quite know what to do with it because it wasn't the movie I wanted to make next. And I remember sitting down and writing the script myself and doing an entire draft myself from beginning to end. It was more of an exercise for me to become familiar with what I wanted Jaws to become. And it was an exercise that was very beneficial because I suddenly had a vision of the film, even though I didn't possess the skills to write it. And David Brown suggested, and Dick Zanuck both suggested, that I go to Howard Sackler, who had written The Great White Hope. Howard Sackler specifically asked not to have credit. He only had a limited time to give to the film. And therefore, he said, I don't want credit. Sackler really broke the back of the movie and got me to say, yes, I'll make this movie next. I'm committing. (laughs) Mr. Hooper, that's the USS Indianapolis. (laughs) You on the Indianapolis? 
The Indianapolis speech, which for me is my favorite part of Jaws, this, this speech that Shaw gives about that, um, that was conceived by Howard Sackler, who only really wrote a short paragraph. And one day I was talking to John Milius and I said, could you make this longer? Because I think it's a speech, not just a couple of short paragraphs. 1,100 men went into the water. The vessel went down in 12 minutes. Didn't see the first shark for about half an hour. And so John sat down and he wrote page after page in longhand, I believe. When Robert Shaw read it, Shaw said, let me have a chance to rewriting it. So and then Shaw rewrote Milius, who had rewritten Sackler. And the speech in the movie is uh, basically Shaw's version of Milius' version of Sackler's version. You know the thing about a shark, he's got lifeless eyes, black eyes, like a doll's eyes. When he comes at you, he doesn't seem to be living until he bites you. And those black eyes roll over white, and then... Oh, then you hear that terrible high-pitched screaming. The ocean turns red, and in spite of all the pounding and the hollering, they all come in, and they rip you to pieces. The legendary English actor Robert Shaw was cast as the unforgettable shark hunter Quint. Here's Spielberg uncasting Richard Dreyfus as oceanographer Matt Hooper. I cast Dreyfus basically because I, I loved American Graffiti, and I had seen him in that, and George Lucas was the person who sort of said to me, why don't you cast Ricky, Ricky Dreyfus? He'd be great. And he told me this movie that he wanted to make, and it was really a, a shocker. I mean, even as he was telling it to me as a tale, it was a great, exciting story. And I said, well, this, this sounds like it's going to be a great movie. I'd rather watch this movie than shoot it, because it's going to be a bitch to shoot. Then a few months later, I went to see the opening of a film that I had done in Canada called The Apprenticeship of Duty Kravitz. And I saw myself really for the first time, and I had a heart attack. I had a total nervous collapse. I thought I was awful. And I, I figured that I'd better get a job really soon. So I called Stephen, and I said, if you still want to offer me that job, I'll take it. And he said, yes. So in essence, I came crawling to Martha's Vineyard for the part. And is Richard Dreyfus glad he crawled back? And when we come back, more on Jaws on this day in history. It debuted in 1975. And as always, our This Day in Histories are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College, the best place in America to study all of the fine and beautiful things in life, the Constitution, philosophy, art, Everything. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will come to you. Go to hillsdale.edu and take their terrific and free online courses. When we come back, the rest of the story of Jaws. It debuted on this day in history in 1975.
And we continue with our story on the debut of Jaws on this day in history in 1975. In movie making, casting a location is just as important as casting the right actor. When it came down to where we would shoot this film, uh, we sent Joe Alves, our production designer, out with a team to give us some ideas and some photographs and pictures of where this town should be shot. And one of the places was the island of Martha's Vineyard, which, believe it or not, had never been photographed by a feature film before. They had very strict rules and regulations there. Martha's Vineyard didn't particularly care for a movie invasion. They didn't like to see an artificial shark parked in a channel where their homes faced it. The real attraction of Martha's Vineyard you couldn't see with the naked eye. It was the fact that it was the only place on the East Coast where I could go 12 miles out to sea and still have a sandy bottom only 30 feet below the surface of the water where we could put the shark's fled and where the mechanical shark could, could, could function. It's very important that no matter what direction my cameras turned, I didn't want to see land. My fear was the minute the audience saw land, they'd say, look, this is getting pretty intense out here. Just turn the boat around and go toward that land that we keep seeing in your movie. I wanted the audience to feel very cut off, like they couldn't just run back to shore because there was no shore to run back to. Like a Hitchcock thriller, much of the horror in Jaws is left to the imagination. Most notably, the opening scene where the girl is swimming at dawn. Here again is Spielberg. Because even in the book, you, the book does describe the shark before you see the attack. I thought that what could really be scary was not seeing the shark and just seeing the water because we all are familiar with the water. Very few of us have been in the water with a shark. But we've all gone swimming. And the idea of this girl going swimming and the audience going swimming with her would have been too extraordinary if, like a leviathan, the shark had come out of the water with its jaws agape and come down on her. And it would have been a spectacular opening for the film, but there would have been nothing primal about it. It would just have been a, a monster moment that we've all seen. And I really wanted to do it without seeing the shark in that, in that case. And I wanted the violent jerking motions to just start to trigger our imaginations into either thinking about what's happening below the surface of the waterline or blocking what was happening below the surface. <laughs> The first jerk down, Stephen did. He had a cable that came to the front of my stomach and went to a anchor that was laying on the bottom of the ocean. And then he just sat, and when he wanted that pull, he just would pull. He wanted to put me on an electric winch. And I wanted to have more control, so we used manpower. They put cut-off Levi's on and had cables running from me out to the side to two pilings and then all the way into the beach. And what they would do is we put marks on the beach and the guys, we'd have five or six guys on each line and they would run back and forth from mark to mark. So I didn't have the hard work to do. I just kind of sat there and got pulled around. The guys were running back and forth on the beach. For some reason or other, they both went the same time and they broke some ribs and she screamed and when she screamed, she went underwater. <laughs> and then she started saying, please God, dear God, like that. And the water was rolling in her mouth and the word God would come out every once in a while. <laughs> she was hurting. I mean, absolutely hurting. I thought she was dying. I was watching it being filmed and it was so real. 
and we went with the one that really hurt her. And that's the one that's in the picture. And then there's the shark, or as they say, the star of the film. Here's members of the Jaws production team on their star. A bunch of us young punks went to this hangar where they'd built the shark. Stephen had been taught how to turn on the hydraulic things so the mouth would open and close. I remember George Lucas crawled into the mouth of this thing. I was looking at these feet sticking out of the mouth, and I said, the relationship of him to that shark is the same as me to a taco. You know, I mean, this thing is going to eat all of you. It ain't going to get your leg. It's going to get you. But, of course, then we broke it. We broke the damn thing, and we all ran out of there like little kids. After a couple of months, we had a frame, we had a skin on, uh, and an unpainted shark. And we, we had it in the parking lot, and it wiggled. And we said, great, you know, let's go to the vineyard and make a movie. Most of the hydraulic valves on the shark were powered by electric solenoids. And they got the whole thing put together, and when they dumped it in the water, everything fried. And so Stephen had to start shooting everything but shark. Guys, we can't shoot right now. Hold on. Every day you come in from shooting, how's the shark? How are they coming? Did they try it? You know, and they would try it and it'd break down. Every day the sharks would be tested, and every day the jaw would go, or the eyes would pop out. That's a much maligned shark, and I'm kind of responsible for creating the, a lot of the bad-mouthing about the shark because the shark was frustrating. It, it didn't really work all the time. It didn't work hardly at all. Hence the wonderful and classic beginning of Jaws in which no shark is seen, but a woman is drawn down into the waters, and there came the terror. We've learned from the two movies, Rocky and Goodfellas, the importance that that Steadicam played in both movie successes. Jaws took the concept of the Steadicam and put it on water. Here's Spielberg and his crew. I really wanted this movie to be just at water level, the way we are when we're treading water. We don't see water three feet off the water. We see water like this. By holding the camera next to the water, just hand-holding it in a water box, which I had made specially for this picture. Panavision built it for me. And then I designed and built rafts so that we could work this water box right at water level. And this has a, a psychology about it that makes you subconsciously aware that right below the surface of that water could be that shark. Without great sound and music, there's no such thing as a great picture. Here's the crew, including music composer of Jaws, John Williams, talking about the movie's iconic sound. We needed something that everybody could say, that's a shark. We took a large uh, Coke bottle and we shook it up real good, threw it out on the cement, and it goes, shh. Put that in a zipper and a little bit of water, and you've got the shark coming out. We showed the film to our financiers at Universal Picture in a rough cut without the music. I had to turn around and say, what do you think? And the response from one of the executives was, it's okay. That was about it. Johnny Williams' score was not in there. The shark should be represented by something in sound or in music, probably music, because there's no sound underneath the water. I expected to hear something kind of weird and melodic, you know, and kind of tonal but eerie and... 
but I thought maybe some kind of driving thing in the bottom of the orchestra might indicate the mindless attack of the shark. Boom, 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 boom. And what he played me instead with two fingers on the lower keys was... Dun, 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 dun. And Stephen said, is that all? And Johnny said, yeah, that's it. One could alter the speed of this ostinato. It could be note, 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 note. Any kind of alteration of speed to, to very slow, very fast, very soft, very loud. All these things could manipulate the, the moment. That combination of sound and, and uh, image forming a memory, which can then be referred back to. And without that score, to this day, I believe the film would have only been half as successful. Once Jaws hit the big screen, it did for ocean swimming what Psycho did for taking a shower. Jaws is now considered one of the greatest films ever made. It was the prototypical summer blockbuster, with its release regarded as a watershed moment in motion picture history. Because of it today, there's a battle every summer to see who will become this summer's blockbuster motion picture. Jaws became the highest grossing film of all time until the release of Star Wars. With a $9 million budget, it grossed $471 million at the box office. Jaws won three Academy Awards for Best Film Editing, Best Original Dramatic Score, and Best Sound. It was also nominated for Best Picture, losing to One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. And Spielberg greatly resented the fact that he was not nominated for Best Director. Along with Star Wars, Jaws was pivotal in establishing the modern Hollywood business model, which revolves around high box office returns from action and adventure pictures with simple, high-concept premises that are released during the summer in thousands of theaters and supported by heavy advertising. Jaws was followed by three sequels, none with the participation of Spielberg, and there were many imitative thrillers thereafter. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. This Day in History, as always, brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College, and in 1975, Jaws made its debut. our American stories and we're back with one of our favorite topics random acts of kindness you can find all sorts of these uplifting stories at randomactsofkindness.org it's a great resource an inspiring one to share with your kids your friends and make sure to leave your story there and that's what we hope to do here is you hear some good ones populate theirs Here's a story from Vallejo, California in the San Francisco Bay Area where an unexpected act of kindness has made this teen's commute 
a heck of a lot easier. This teen had just finished his shift at night in Benicia when an officer spotted him walking home. He says he thought he was in trouble first when the officer stopped him, but then they started talking. I've been walking far distances since I was about 10. 18-year-old Jordan Duncan has been walking to work since May after his car broke down, and he won't ask for rides. I don't want to feel like I'm a burden to people, so I take the initiative to handle myself and my own ways to where I need to go from point A to point B. Duncan lives in Vallejo and works in Benicia. It's about a two-hour commute each way on foot, up and down hills, through city streets to avoid the highway. Four hours all together. I got used to the walk and, you know, it's not hard to walk. It just happened to be uh, going down industrial when I saw him walking. Benicia Police Corporal Kirk Keffer stopped Duncan last Saturday. He said, so you walk from work to Vallejo? I was like, you know, if I have no other way. At that point, I was like, well, once you jump in, I'll give you a ride home. The two got to know each other. Keffer talked about life as an officer, and Duncan shared his aspirations to be an officer with the CHP. Keffer was so impressed with the teen's work ethic, he and the members of the Benicia Police Officers Association surprised Duncan at work on Monday with a new mountain bike. There's not a lot of... Uh... 18-year-olds out there that have this dedication, this work ethic, and we just wanted to make sure that he knew that how much I actually appreciated what he's doing. Duncan was shocked. You know, not all officers are bad. He's quickly learned how to handle the bike, and it cuts his travel time in half. This bike is my best friend, my best friend right here. I love this bike. Duncan is extremely grateful, and after hearing about his desire to be an officer, we're heard, we've learned that the Benicia Police Department is working to give him a ride-along in the coming weeks. And as he said, not all cops are bad. And again, you're not going to see that in the national news. Maybe a nice little local feature. But never, ever in the national news. And never eight minutes or ten minutes or twenty minutes, let alone two weeks of coverage. And again, we talk often here about law enforcement and the outliers and the bad cops, because there are plenty, but not nearly as many as the media would have you think. And I would bet it's less than 1% or even less than that. And now we move to Pensacola, Florida, where a Marine was honored for helping a fellow triathlete. The service our country's Marines provide on and off the battlefield isn't done for the recognition. But 19-year-old Marine Private First Class Matthew Morgan was recognized for the compassion he showed a young triathlete who lost his leg to cancer. This is what being a Marine is about. And I'm really glad that, you know, if I do anything, I, I get to help show that. Since losing his leg to bone cancer, 11-year-old Ben Baltz has been running triathlons and other athletic competitions throughout Northwest Florida. On October 7th, Baltz was running in the Sea Turtle Tri-Kids Triathlon. He was halfway through the run portion when his prosthetic leg failed and he fell. Morgan and another Marine were volunteering at a water stand nearby and ran to help. I just got there first. When I got there, he'd already, you know, thrown himself up and was continuing to try and fix his prosthetic. And I asked him, do you need help? And he looked at me and said, no, I'm going to finish. But Morgan says Baltz couldn't get his prosthesis back on. He knew he wasn't going to be able to reattach it because he was missing a screw. And I got in front of him and I said, you know, pop on. For the last half of the event, Morgan carried Baltz on his back, trekking across beach sand and then crossing the finish line. 
As fellow Marines watched, Congressman Jeff Miller presented Morgan with a medal for his achievement. Despite his act of kindness, PFC Morgan says he doesn't consider himself a hero. He was just simply doing what any other Marine would do. I was just the first Marine there. Every, every Marine says they would have done the exact same thing. Ben's story is a perfect inspiration to Marines, to everyone for that matter, and, and how he perseveres and continues on even when, you know, not everything goes his way. Boy, I'd love to get both of those guys on the air, by the way. That's just such a good story. I'd want to go longer with it. Fantastic. Next up, a teen from Salisbury Township, Pennsylvania, arrives to his first day of high school in style. A fleet of more than 16 bikers escorted Sean Mayer on the way to his first day of class. Sean has Down syndrome and has been bullied at school. So this year, a local motorcycle club picked the teen up at his house at 6 a.m. to show their support. Sean rode on the back of a bike wearing a helmet and vest and arrived at school ready to tackle the day. Just before he walked into the building, Sean high-fived his friends who all clearly have his back. About 100 bikers were in attendance. It's unbelievable the hearts that, that you guys and gals have to come out here and it really truly shows what the community's all about. And last but not least, a complete stranger in Victorville, California, displays jaw-dropping generosity. 86-year-old Dale Stoner is going to change the life of eight complete strangers by paying for their full college tuition. He surprised the first two students, Ronaldo Lopez and Tenancy Vargas, with the news. This makes me feel really great inside. I was so shocked at the moment that I just started crying. With all of Dale's own kids grown, he worked hard all his life, and a large portion of his money was earned from real estate. He wanted to help others. To me, it's, it's all very simple. The money is there. Uh, there's no need on my side of my, my kids. And uh, so I just said, well. Dale and his wife didn't know how to pick the students, so they looked in the phone book to discover a high school. I talked to our counseling office and our two counselors and our leadership team, and they pulled two names, and they said these two kids are deserving. Now these two students are heading to college, only focusing on their education. Dale hopes others will pay it forward after hearing about his kind gesture. I want him to see me graduate so that he knows like he didn't do this just for nothing. You bet. That kid's going to graduate, that's for sure. And one last story, and it's just personal. One of the guys who helped build our beautiful studio here, JJ, a great craftsman, really great worker with his hands. He's had some tough times. His, his wife left. She had drug problems. He's trying to raise a child by himself. And he was working for a fellow who just wasn't paying him. He's holding back his taxes. Just he worked for a bad employer. And so he finally extricates himself from that situation. And then his truck breaks down. And a worker who works with his hands without a truck my goodness, that's a tough situation. And he's sitting down on the porch with a friend of his who's hit some good times. He's a developer and he's made some money. And he's telling his friend about the truck and this and that. Next day, his buddy comes up to him, throws him some car keys to a white, brand new Ford F-150. And he says, take this. And JJ goes, well, thanks. You know, it's about a week. I'll have the other car fixed. He goes, no, you don't understand. Take this. It's yours. You're a good guy. Take care.
And he just walks out. And JJ just, he calls me up crying. And he said, man, people are just so generous. And they are. And this happens all the time, folks. So when folks are trying to tell you there's no good in the world, there's no God in the world, there's no love in the world, well, turn off the channel. Turn off that person. Find new people. Find new friends. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And many people in this country struggle with the issue of mental health, young and old alike. And despite how widespread these issues are, very few young people particularly feel comfortable enough to talk about their struggles with mental health. I think peer groups drive so much of this. It's hard enough for old people to do it and older people. But not so with one, one BYU quarterback, no less, Tanner Mangum. Tanner broke this trend in an in-depth Instagram post, of all places, telling the world about his struggle with mild depression and anxiety. We interviewed Tanner about his battle with depression and his decision to take this struggle public. I think it was, it was about, about this time a year ago. You know, I think, you know, everyone has, you know, has ups and downs, or, you know, good days and bad days. But, you know, I, I was just kind of going through a, a hard time. And, like, it was kind of just like bad day after bad day after bad day. And I just really wasn't feeling myself. You know, I kind of lost a lot of motivation, lost a lot of energy. I didn't really have any desire to go out and spend time with, with friends or family. And, and I, don't, I don't know. I just kind of realized something was up. And then, uh, you know, I was talking to my to my family and, uh, you know, my parents, you know, suggested that I, you know, go and, go and seek some help, you know, just, just go see what I can do to, to feel better. And so I started meeting with, with the counselor, you know, I was diagnosed with mild depression and, and, and anxiety. And it wasn't necessarily an easy thing to do, but once I started informing myself about the whole situation and learning more about it, I was able to, to kind of understand, you know, what my mind was telling me, what my body's telling me, and able to get, get help and, see, and get treatment and, and feel so much better. We asked Tanner what inspired him to make his struggle known. As I was going through the whole process, I realized I wanted to use my platform and use my voice you know, to, to help others who are going through similar struggles, to let them know that they're not alone, that, we, you know, that we're in this together, that, we can, that you can get help and you know, feel better. So I just wanted to kind of use that platform that I have to, to you know, use my voice for, for a good cause. I think you know, one, of the, one of the biggest things that, uh, that motivated me was seeing Brendan Marshall, the receiver for the New York Giants. Uh, you know, at, at the pro level, he was making a big, you know, he, he continues to this day to make a big, um, big stand for mental health, and he, he's a big advocate for it, and, and uh, you know, he, he shared his experiences with it and wants to make a difference in that field. 
So seeing him do it inspired me and, and motivated me that even though mental health might not be a common, popular topic among, you know, male football players, it's something that needs to be addressed. Uh, you know, people don't need to be ashamed of it. I think there's a big stigma surrounding it. So seeing him and seeing what he did kind of, you know, inspired me to share my own story to be able to, you know, to be able to help others and make a difference in their lives. And by the way, we know the role models that football players are, and they also have this macho identity they have to deal with. So doing something like this takes tremendous courage uh, to reveal themselves and to be vulnerable. Tanner is an active and vocal member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. You know them as Mormons. He talked about his faith and how it helped him through the difficult times of his life. I think my faith and, and my membership as a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, it, it, it helped me, to be honest, because I know I was in a safe place. You know, I knew I was in a, a place where I wouldn't be judged, you know, where I'd be you know, loved and accepted for, for who I am, you know, flaws and all. Regardless of, you know, what's going on, there's, there's help and there's resources available that the church, that the church provides. And then, and then also just, just my faith in general, you know, just, it's, it's helped me because I know that, you know, that, uh, you know, through, through difficulties and through trials, we can be strengthened. You know, I think, uh, one of, that's one of the biggest things I've learned through my faith in God and, 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 and by going to church is that trials come, but we can be strengthened and, and made better. And, um, and I think this, this trial has definitely helped me become a better person. You know, it's helped me become more sympathetic and, and more understanding. And it's helped me rely on my family members and friends that, you know, that I, that I go to church with. And it's just nice knowing that I'm not alone. You know, I'm not alone in this struggle, that uh, I have had my faith, family members and, and things to, you know, to, to help me get through, this, through the trial. And, then, and also the trial just strengthens me as a person in general. And we hear that time and again here on Our American Stories, the power of faith and the positive power of faith in people's lives. And we don't mind sharing that with you here on this show. Back when he was a high school quarterback, Tanner attended the famous Elite 11 camp. Tanner was the co-MVP of that camp, sharing the honor with last year's first overall draft pick, Jamie Winston. Before committing to BYU, Tanner was ranked as the third best pro-style quarterback of his class. Tanner gave up these prospects to go on a two-year mission trip in Chile. We asked him about this decision. But for me, the decision was easy because I just I had made that decision as a young as a young kid. You know, it, it had always been my goal and my plan to serve a mission and to be able to you know dedicate myself to serving others, dedicate myself to to going and, and helping other people, and uh, not, and not worrying so much about myself, but you know, first and foremost, serving God and serving. And serving others, and so when that time came to, you know, to to decide if I was going to you know stay and play football or or take a two year pause and go on the mission, I already knew what I wanted to do because I knew you know what the right thing to do was, and so yeah, I mean it's it's not necessarily the easiest thing in the world, you know it's 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 hard, you know you kind of get out of shape, you kind of get rusty, and um, you know it's not it's not easy to come back and, and get back into you know into football playing shape and be ready to play in games, but I wouldn't trade it for the world. I mean the, the lessons that I learned there and the experiences I had are, you know, were life changing and unforgettable. While it may have taken me on a different path than most, you know, college football quarterbacks, I'm, I'm grateful for the experience that I had and, and uh, it's definitely shaped me and, and into who I am today. We asked Tanner if he wanted to share any stories from that mission trip. And he told us about a little boy in a Dallas Cowboy Jersey. You know, this, this family that, that we met, it, it, was, it was kind of funny that they, one of the, their children was wearing a Dallas Cowboys 
shirt. And he had no idea who the Dallas Cowboys were. You know, they don't they don't really follow football down there in Chile. They follow soccer. And so I just started talking to him about uh, his Dallas Cowboys shirt. And then we, we started um, chatting with the family and became super close friends with them. And, and, and you know, we still stay in contact with them to this day. So it was just, I don't know, it was just a cool cool experience for me. Just kind of using, using it started, you know, it all started with football and, and Dallas Cowboys and just talking about that. And then that, you know, one thing led to, led to the next. And, you know, now here we are, good friends, and they've been able to change their lives and feel happier and feel better. And just something that's a really, really cool experience that stuck with me. Tanner went on to describe how his experience in Chile changed his outlook on mental health. Throughout this whole mental health conversation, you know, I, I've been I've been asked, you know, like, what what can you do to, to, to you know to help yourself feel better, to you know to combat it, and and what you know, what are some of the remedies that you use to feel better? And for me, one of the best things for me that that helps me is, is serving others and service, because you know one of the happiest times of my life was was the mission was was when I was when, when I was in Chile because I was just totally focused on serving others and not worried about myself or my problems or what I was going through. And when you, when you help other people, you just feel good about yourself. You feel good. You feel happy. And so I try to like, you know, replicate that now. Obviously, obviously it's a lot different, but I just, just by doing, going out of my way to look for opportunities to help, to serve, it helps a lot and it makes you feel, you know, so much better. So that's one of the best, you know, experiences I had in as far as, you know, finding true happiness. And finally, we asked Tanner if he had anything to say to those young college students who've planned or have thought about or pondered suicide in the past year. If I had, a, if I had any advice for, for students or anyone who's you know, struggling with depression or having suicidal thoughts, I would just tell them that you're not alone, that uh, there's help, there, there's healing that, that you can find and you can, that you can have. And there's nothing to be ashamed of. It's okay to talk about it. It's okay to go see a counselor. It's okay to to take medication if, if necessary. And, and uh, you know, it's it's uh, it's something that should be taken seriously. And it's something that uh, that a lot of people struggle with. And it's so much easier to take care of when you're when you're not ashamed of it. It's so much easier to take care of it when when you can accept it and go and get help. Every every life is meaningful and important and. And uh, regardless of the struggles that we all face, you can we can get help and, and be able to to feel better. And um, so I think that's the advice I would give the, give to them is that there is treatment available, there's help, and uh, it's something that that can be taken care of. Yep, you're not alone, and there's nothing to be ashamed of. And here on our American Stories, we cover every kind of story. My beautiful niece, almost three years ago this summer, uh, took her life. We didn't know the depths of her depression. And so we cover these stories because they happen. They're real. And, well, as Tanner said, if we can make you feel less alone and not ashamed or unashamed, um, that could prevent or perhaps stop the loss of life. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories, Tanner Mangum's story. More after these messages.
I look across at smiling lips that warm my heart and see my morning sun. And if that's not loving me, then all I gotta say. Oh, God didn't make little green apples. It don't rain in Indianapolis in the summertime. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And that was such a huge hit for O.C. Smith. The whole country listened to this song. Old, young, and what a voice. And what a song. And we're talking about O.C. Smith because, well, every day... When we're doing our show pitches and we're gathering around to talk about what we're going to talk about and what segments we're going to do, well, it always goes to food at some point or another. And Hengler's our resident foodie, and he's just, well, he's hung up about so many things, but apples in particular. So this is our off-mic segment of the day. Casey uh, talks to no, me about ratios the, are everything. It is. Yeah. He talks to everything. me about the ratios of burgers because we just moved here from Southern California yeah. and all she did in Southern California was eat In-N-Out Burger. Nothing else. It's a nice skinny nothing burger. else to eat. That's nice the best burger. burger. Right. And so she came here and everybody's like, oh, steak and shake, it's just like In-N-Out. No. And she says <laughs> there is nothing because their ratios, the bun to the burger and everything is perfect. It is perfect. And she, and she said the steak and shake doesn't come even close. No, it's too thin. It's too thin. But by the way, Crystal's really perfect too. It has really thin mm. buns and really mm. thin beef. And then it has just the right amount of pickle to burger ratio. And then just the right amount of onion. It, it, it's really, wow. it's really You're gonna good have ratios. A thick it's burger. why it's good. Except you, you they ha- copied it. Yeah. It's not even their ratio. Okay. You can I'll have a thick burger, but it's got to be properly seasoned like a meatloaf almost. Well, that's true too. Otherwise, you're going to have like that fleshy tone in your mouth that just kind of Covering up all the rest of the burger, mm. but the ratios. I'm telling you, for peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, you can. This is why you cannot have someone else make a peanut That's butter true. and jelly sandwich yeah. for you because mm. they'll get the ratio wrong. It's true, and well, it's not just the peanut butter to jelly ratio; it's the bread to the peanut butter and jelly <laughs> ratio itself. You can't have too much peanut butter and too much jelly as long as there's the exact amount of peanut butter and jelly. Yeah, but what if the, what if you have a so lot much of peanut butter and, and jelly a lot that of jelly. it overwhelms the bread? Oh, there's nothing wrong with that. I like. Oh, no, so you don't matter. You you just cr- stack that up. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's also the matter of crunchy or soft peanut butter. I mean, See, crunchy. Is, well, let me, I want to understand something. So let's take the burger ratio. Right. So you wouldn't mind having like one of those burgers with like a pound of beef. No, that's just disgusting. Little, I like that's a too thin much burger, burger just, for bread, right? Yeah, we're talking about maybe like a quarter inch, maybe a half inch of a thick of so a. So what's burger. the maximum amount of like meat you'll take on a burger? No, I, I can't stand it when people have like more than one patty of meat. That's right. disgusting. Unless it's a Big Mac. Big Mac is a different story because it's so thin, and they sneak it in there with that special sauce. You can't really tell that there's two patties. That's true. <laughs> you can't really tell. Well, and also, don't they have that one sandwich where they put the bread in the middle, so there's actually three pieces of bread? Yeah, two yeah there's more yeah, bread. That's yeah. right. Yeah. But the Whopper, on the other hand, I mean, that's a pretty thick piece of meat, but it's still only about a quarter inch thick, and right. it's charboiled, which helps with the flavor. So you're not just eating this this fleshy kind of unseasoned meat. There's actually some flavor there. But you don't like those fancy restaurants that go, "Hey, we got like a half." Oh yeah, and it's like it's bun. as thick as yeah, my this is cell phone with a case in half. Yeah, no, that's disgusting. You want you want uh, you want thin. All right, we yeah. settled this. We settled this. Well, ratio, yeah, ratios are everything. I'm just talking to you about the peanut butter on my apples. Yeah, like even my kids, they're three, four, five years old, and I have to put the correct amount on there, and I understand. Yeah. Like if you have a big glob of peanut butter on your thinly sliced apple. It just overwhelms it, which goes back to what we were talking about yeah. with Chipotle's burritos. Those darn 
Guacamole. If they just put a decent amount on and not charge you for it, we'd be in, in heaven. Yeah, yeah. The most important ratio, though, with peanut butter and jelly sandwiches is how much milk you have. No doubt. It's very You important. have to have a full glass of milk. And if there's milk left over, I mean, then your wife's going to yell at you because you put the glass of milk back in the fridge. There's like that much in there, but the kids will come through and drink it. Oh, yeah. yeah. And by the way, there's something <laughs> or evil. Get the people who leave right. this much of anything in anything oh, should yeah, be shot. Unacceptable. They should be shot. <laughs> yeah. And we know who they are in every household. Because yeah. that's me, by the way. My <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> no, and it goes that way with apples, too. Nobody knows how to properly eat an apple. They, 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 they eat it. And they leave so much on there, and I'm like, bah! You know, yeah. it's just like, it, it drives me crazy. I've gotten to the point now where I'm in my car, or, or like if I'm somewhere and I don't have anywhere to put the leftover piece, I eat the whole thing with the stem. I don't care. It's like, I'm just going to eat it all. I don't care what kind of poison they say are in, that, in the seeds of the apple. I'm going to eat it all. Arsenic, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I don't care. I, I like <laughs> discarding my, my, uh, my apple cores and my banana <laughs> peels, because then I can like show my kids when it's okay to litter. Just throw that stuff anywhere you want to. It's okay. It's, oh, it's yeah. biodegradable. Why is there an apple in front There's of you? There's an apple in front of you because we're going to do the test. I talked to you guys about the, the test? best. This the is the test? This is a test. This is an apple I'm not even test. sure you still did the dude wife's test, first did you? No, no, I did. Well, I first did. Did you first do of all, I don't know oh, if it's necessarily okay. a test because I've already, I've tried everything and this is the best apple you've ever had. This, this apple? is called an envy apple. This is mm. actually better than that Brayburn I was telling you about. Oh, it smells good. Yeah, it's amazing. The it's envy got of the all perfect apples, huh? balance, everything in it. This apple will not be defeated by any other apple. Honestly, I can't tell much of a difference between this apple you and most. Yeah, it, maybe you just haven't worked up a. It's a great a, apple. A refined palate for apples. It's a perfect apple, and that's a great apple. I gotta say, that's it's a very great sweet. Apple. It is. It's just got not a nice texture. Too much of anything. Like the Granny Smith, it's just too sour. This has got a perfect balance of everything. Mm. Is there more money? It's well right now at the store it's two ninety nine a pound, but a couple of days ago it was a buck ninety nine. So you just got to stock up when it gets. So done. is this the food that you can just hmm. not stop eating? Is that your food? Because we all got yeah. food we can't stop eating. Oh yeah, yeah. This 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 one is is dangerous, especially because okay, I, I used to do almond butter, mm-hmm. but now I do sunflower seed butters because my daughter was allergic to peanuts for a while, so we just cut it out for a few years, and so we started to put in sunflower seed butter. And then so I started to eat it, and I'm like, wow, this is really good. And so now I've just completely switched over, and she's back to peanut butter. Can you eat so much that you get sick? Like when you eat that extra apple, when you go, <laughs> why did I do that to myself? You know what? I never, ever get sick um, just the way I eat. But I get to a point where I feel a little like a little brick in the stomach. <laughs> mm-hmm. And it always happens from having too much apples and sunflower seed butter. Mm-hmm. Like, so you can never have too much. So, I mean, as far as like weight-wise, I'm trying to shed some pounds oh, myself. Yeah. But you can eat apples all day long, and the sugars aren't going to add up well, like see, a, Yeah, exactly, because you, you guys had brought up the sugars in the apples. That right. Wow, that's a lot of sugar. Right. But the whole idea, and this is the whole reason why juicing is so ridiculous, is because that's going to make your insulin spike to heaven. Hmm. But if, as soon as you keep the fiber in your fruit and you don't extract it and make it juice, yeah, right. that fiber is going to help balance out and your insulin isn't going to go through the roof. And that's what makes you get overweight. That's what takes those carbs and throws them right into your stomach. Right. And so especially, too, because I'm putting the sunflower seed butter on it, that fiber is, is helping that, that, all that fat from the sunflower seed butter, too. And so yeah. it's just a really good... Well, good, and that's that's why I stay away from starches like yeah. pastas and potatoes because oh, that's yeah. going to shoot your insulin right through the <laughs> it's room. It's so hard it's to stay totally. away from pasta though. I mean, my wife makes this fettuccine that you could die for. I mean, it's what about rice though? Because I, I like jambalaya. Starch. Yeah, 
Yeah, that's, bad? Just, that's pure. That's gonna shoot. I oh. stay away from rice, but I wouldn't. I wouldn't discourage other people to stay away from it. I wouldn't discourage other people to. I would just. I would just try to lean them in the direction of like a sweet potato, and even more. I would say if you could, if you can, yeah. completely switch over to butternut squash. Oh, butternut squash disgusting. is amazing. Oh. If you put a little brown sugar and stuff on there it. There was two foods I never had to eat as a child. One was peas and the other was squash. Oh, it's good. <laughs> Just, so I guess you have nothing to say about my, because you have the 12 apples. And when I'm sitting down yeah. with, a, with a really special assortment of crystal burgers, I, I like the first four or five. The first four or five I get through, I'm feeling fine. But it's that sixth and that seventh. Yep. But I have friends yeah. who can just plow through a dozen of those. A oh, dozen yeah. of those. I could do that. Oh, we drove by Crystal the other day, and Casey even said to me, "What's Crystal?" Oh no, don't go in. It's a knockoff you company. Go in. I haven't been in, in one of those places in a while. Very good. Yeah. Not so as good as what's, what do you guys think? I mean, it's a very good apple. That's a great apple. I mean, I'm not. I, I right. can't go hysterical over the apple because so I'm not excited. an apple yeah. guy like Right, right, right. But it is. It's better than any other apple I've ever had. Yeah, it's incredible. No question. <laughs> one, one to ten, probably a ten. We're accepting sponsors for Envy. <laughs> we'll do that. This yeah. is very good. <laughs> it is. Oh. Well, there you have it. Our off mic segment. Now you know what we're really obsessed about. We could actually sometimes spend an hour talking about our last meal, the meal we're about to have, our favorite food, and I know you love food too. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories, our off-mic segment of the day. And you can go to OurAmericanNetwork.org to hear all of this, the silliness and the seriousness, serious and the sublime. More after this. American stories, and we love to hear your stories, and you can send them to us at ouramericannetwork.org. And every once in a while, we have friends' stories or people we know, people who are close to us, and we share their stories. And Faith has a story here from her friend, Shannon. Let's take a listen. I vividly remember running down the streets of Oxford, Mississippi. It was the night before I was moving in at Ole Miss, and my parents went out to eat and brought me back a pita bread sandwich, but I was terrified of eating carbs. So I was refusing to eat it, but then I got to where I was so hungry that I ended up eating it. And I was so mad at myself. So I took off running down Jackson Avenue and just ran until I felt like I had burned it all off. That was one of the pivotal moments in my whole journey of this struggle with a healthy relationship with food and a healthy relationship with the way I viewed my body. My parents told me when I got back to the hotel that they weren't going to leave me in college eight hours from home when I'm struggling this much. So it started probably my senior year of high school. I can't really remember anything prior to that where I really had an issue with it. I always just ate what I wanted. I mean, didn't think that 
I had this great body, like I for sure had things that I wanted to change, but it never stopped me from living a normal life and eating what I wanted. Never felt like I had to work out or anything like that. Grew up playing competitive tennis for as long as I can remember. I stopped playing competitive tennis and just played for my high school. So my senior year when tennis season ended, I figured I should do something. So. I remember one of my friends was on the soccer team. She came into the gym with this workout that our strength coach had given her. She asked if I wanted to do it with her. So we tried to do it, but we didn't understand any of the terminology. So we went to my high school to the weight room to ask the coach what all this stuff meant. And he told us we could just work out in the weight room and he would help us out as we go along. I ended up loving it. I had the best time in there. It was great that I didn't have to run on the treadmill, but still felt like I was getting my heart rate up. And so I really enjoyed that. And I started going back every day after school and slowly like started to change things in my diet, tried to be a little healthier, almond milk instead of regular milk, natural peanut butter instead of regular peanut butter. Little subtle changes that really didn't really seem to be a problem. It was just trying to eat healthier, but it kind of snowballed into this unhealthy relationship with food where I would only eat healthy food and if I didn't think it was healthy or if it was bread or carbs then I wouldn't eat it. Yeah it started off as just something that was totally healthy and got to where it was this obsessive thing where I wouldn't eat I wouldn't eat a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. So that was all my senior year of high school towards the end of it and then that summer still same thing struggled a lot I remember going to Bible study and eating a cookie and crying because I ate a cookie it was so deeply rooted in fear the fear of gaining weight the fear of not looking how I want to look and it wasn't so much about trying to do it for other people or for other people to accept me but it was so much about how I saw myself that was the problem people could tell me that I looked great they could tell me that all day every day but I I never would believe them unless I felt that way about myself and I never really did it was just this thing that was just rooted deeply in fear and just not finding my self-worth in who God says that I am. So it was a really dark period of my life. I remember going to Young Life Camp, which I almost didn't go because of my fear of what they were going to have to eat there and that I wouldn't be able to work out. And I had another friend that was kind of the same way as I was, and so she and I would work out together during the day and do like this these body weight workouts while everyone else is having fun at camp we were working out I remember bringing my blender and plugging it in in the bathroom and making protein shakes one night I specifically remember that they were having spaghetti for dinner so spaghetti bread carbs galore my friend and I both refused to eat it we were like nope carbs can't do it so we ended up eating spaghetti sauce for dinner And that was really when I noticed, like, all right, I've got to work on this. Like, this this is a problem, and it's rooted so deeply that I need to get past it. I need to find my worth in who God says that I am and 
But as much as I knew I needed to fix it, it still was just something that I was holding on to and clinging to that I didn't, I didn't want to give it up. I mean, I wanted to be healed from it, but I also still, my desire for looking the way that I wanted to look was still so much greater than the desire to change. And so that was all the summer before my freshman year of college. Then we get to the night that I take off running and and my parents tell me I can't go to college. And so that was kind of when the light bulb really went off. Like, okay, Shannon, you've got to change this because you're not going to go to college if you don't. And so I talked to my parents. They talked to my roommate. I convinced them to let me stay. The first semester was a little shaky. I lost like 10 pounds, still struggled, but I was getting better. But it really wasn't until my second semester of my freshman year when I started doing CrossFit that things really changed. I didn't even know what CrossFit was, but I had been working out by myself and it was totally God, but I didn't realize it at the time. It was just on my heart to look up CrossFit in Oxford. I started going to Oxford CrossFit and never looked back. Just started going there usually five days a week. Loved it and loved the way that I was using my body to do amazing things. I started to realize that if I wanted to be really skinny, then CrossFit wasn't the place for me because I also wanted to be really strong. And you can't get really strong unless you're eating enough food to fuel your body. And so my mindset just totally shifted from this desire to be skinny to this desire to be strong and see what all my body could do and how much weight I could lift. And I was just put into this place where everybody was striving to be better physically and stronger. And the girls there, they wanted to be strong and they wanted to have muscles and they wanted to eat to sustain themselves. And so I was just like, just overwhelmed by people that were such lights in my life. And I was just able to really shift my mindset of this desire to be so skinny, this desire to just see what all my body can do. And if that means gaining 20 pounds and putting on a lot of muscle, then so be it. So it became like so much less about a number on a scale or what I look like. And it became more about the numbers that I could lift. It was just really exciting. And and still to this day, my mindset has shifted and God has used CrossFit so much in my life to just change that and change that desire. I still find myself every now and then being really critical of myself and hard on myself, but it's so rare that that happens. And when it does happen, I'm able to remember that change and remember why I'm doing what I'm doing and that I want to be strong. And there are days where I wish I looked like I did my freshman year, but then I also remember that dark, dark place that I was in and I never want to be back there. So I'm just so much happier now. I feel like I can live my life. I can go out to eat with friends. I can get a burger and my life doesn't revolve around what I'm eating or when I'm working out. I just wish I could tell every girl that struggles with it that your body is so capable of so many things that you would never know. Just that the way we see ourselves is so skewed. My prayer for so long was just like, God, let me see myself the way you see me. I still haven't totally mastered that, but I've come a long way and it's totally changed everything.
CrossFit and lifting weights isn't for everyone, but I would suggest that to so many girls because it's so empowering and, and it just shows you what your body is capable of. But if that's not something that's for you, just for any girl out there that's struggling with body image and any kind of eating disorder, whether it's that you're anorexic or that you refuse to eat anything that you think isn't healthy. Just that there's so much more to life. Our bodies are fading. No matter what, there's nothing we can do to change that. I'm not saying to go and eat a burger for every meal of every day, but just to have balance, be able to enjoy life and enjoy being with friends and family and, and going and eating fun food every now and then, but just really to find your self-worth in who God says that you are and not letting the world change that or even just yourself and your thoughts about yourself to change that. And thanks for that, Faith, and thank you, Shannon. And this is something a lot of women suffer through, and some men too. And going from that skinny paradigm to that strong paradigm that changed your life. CrossFit changed your life, and that's what we deal with here on Our American Stories. People's stories, your stories. This is Faith's friend's story, Shannon's story, here on Our American Stories. Our American Stories.